Peter Thomas Fornatal here. We at In The Money Media are so happy to be partnering with Maggie Wolfendale on this new podcast series. On these shows, Maggie is telling the story of the horses through the voices of the people who love them and whose lives have been changed by them. Best of all, they're being produced to benefit our friends at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, whose mission of saving lives, both human and equine, is so important to Maggie and so important to us at the network. To make a gift to support this show and the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, go to trfinc.org slash offtrack. That's trfinc.org slash offtrack. The next voice you hear will be Maggie Wolfendale. Dark Bay or Brown Gelding, fold March 3, 2008, in Kentucky, by Empire Maker, out of Dynamist, by Dynaformer. Three starts, zero first, zero seconds, one third. Earnings, $6,040. Jockey Club name, Dynamaker. This is his story off track, as told by Dr. Carly Fedorka. Here with Dr. Carly Fedorka of Swickley Stables and a very busy woman. So first and foremost, I want to thank you, Carly, for being on Off Track tonight. Thank you so much for having me. Let's first talk about you and how you got involved with horses, with horse racing, and obviously that you own a veterinary degree. And we do refer to you as Dr. How did this all evolve from childhood until today? Oh gosh, it's um it's a long winding journey, but uh ever since I was a really really little girl, all I wanted was a bay thoroughbred and I somehow duped my parents into buying me one when I was about 12 years old. Um his name was Levi, he was phenomenal and he kind of got me into eventing and pony club and all of that fun stuff, but I was never that big into competing. I didn't do young riders. I didn't move up the levels as a high schooler. And it wasn't really until after graduating from college that I found myself in Lexington, Kentucky and unemployed. And it was during that really bad recession in 2008. And so where I couldn't find a job with my biology degree, I found a job working as a groom on a thoroughbred breeding operation. And I, you know, quickly moved up the ranks on the thoroughbred breeding farms until I was eventually a farm manager. And the rest is kind of history. I've just, I've always loved thoroughbreds, but getting immersed in the breeding side of things really just opened my eyes to the pedigrees and the various ways in which we raise these horses and how to select a good horse and that was really the basis for me getting back into riding. I, you know, I took a pretty long hiatus from riding and it wasn't until about 2012 that I got back into it. And the rest is kind of history because one horse became two, which became three. And now we have our 
farm of our own. Well, that's, I mean, it's, I'm, that is very much the abbreviated version, I'm sure. Um, but so when did you get your, your veterinary degree? So I was working as the farm manager of Hinkle Farms right here in Paris, Kentucky in 2011 when we had um, a pretty bad outbreak of a disease called Nicardiaform placentitis, and it caused a ton of mares to have abortions. And I reached out to the Gluck Equine Research Center just as a farm manager and asked a bunch of questions that they didn't have the answers to. And upon speaking with some of the reproduction faculty at the University of Kentucky, um, they were very intrigued by the fact that I had a degree uh, that was pre-vet in biology, but I'd been out of college for a while. And they just pretty heavily recruited me to come back and uh, obtain a PhD in reproductive physiology. So I finished my PhD in 2017 and I am now what's called a postdoctoral scholar. So it's kind of like a residency where you're in limbo between finishing up your degree, but not yet faculty or an attending. Um, and so that's usually about five years. I'm on year three. So I'm right kind of halfway through. But my degree is in reproduction, and I specifically focus on infectious diseases and the immune response to various things in the reproductive tract. And I'm sure that that uh, disease or that uh, outbreak that I'm not even going to try to repeat the, the name <laughs> of again, did that really spark your interest into what you focused on now? Yeah, it's actually been really kind of um, full circle. It actually had the disease is just a it's called placentitis, which just means inflammation of the of the placenta. When I went to graduate school, I thought I was going to cure it. And uh, interestingly, you don't really get to choose the topic that you study in graduate school. It's basically what there is money to study. And so I spent five years of a PhD studying the immune response to semen. <laughs> so it had nothing to do with the placenta. It had nothing to do with infectious disease. And then during my postdoc, what I'm doing now, um, I took that information that I had learned during my PhD of the solid background I had in both immunology and reproduction, and I've really twisted it more towards placentitis, which is the disease that originally intrigued me. And um, the disease in 2011 is a type of placentitis called nocardiaform, and I actually just published uh, the first two manuscripts to ever be published for biomarkers to detect the disease. So I definitely poured out a glass of wine that night and kind of cheers yes. myself for following through with it and getting it out there. Cause you know, to this day, I'm still a farm manager at heart. And so I want the research that I do to be very clinically relevant to the breeders and the veterinarians here in town. Massive congratulations to you. That is quite an accomplishment to just be intrigued and, you know, wanting to do right by the horses that you were involved with to actually becoming and having that doctorate and writing that manuscript is is incredible and really needs to be commended. Let's kind of go and take an exit off to your OTTB path into how did, as you were a farm manager, how did that evolve into kind of, I know you, obviously you had a thoroughbred as a, as a youngster, but going back to it and taking them from the track and retraining them. 
It's actually really funny because um, while I was at Hinkle, you know, it's 2009, 2010, and it's amazing to look back on the last 10, I would say 10 years, really, truly, because I remember there being a very quick turnaround, almost like 2013, where the off the track thoroughbred got really popular again. But even Mm -hmm. as recently as 2010, just the market wasn't really there in general. Like we had just come out of this terrible recession. People weren't buying horses, nonetheless, thoroughbreds. And um, Hinkle Farms had this beautiful warfront gelding um, that was in training that they had kept to own. And they very, very rarely kept geldings to to race. Um, Always kept fillies, never the colts. And this horse could not run to save his life. And I remember going to the Thoroughbred Training Center here in Lexington as the farm manager. And I think he put in a work of like four furlongs and like 52 and change. (laughs) And I was like, this is pathetic. This is so bad. But he was stunning. And Tom Hinkle was like, we might own the only war front that can't run. And I was like, yeah, no, I think we do. And so uh, in speaking with the trainer, Wayne Mackey, and Tom Hinkle, and our bloodstock consultant, Ben Kessinger, they all were like, you know what, let's just bring him home. He's sound. He's happy. Let's find him a home. And I was like, can I try to sell him? And they were like, no, just find him a home. And I was like, but we could sell him. (laughs) I like, this would be fun. Let's produce him a little bit and sell him. And I hadn't really ridden competitively in probably eight years, but I got up on that horse, fell in love with him. His name was Natty, Natural Bridge, and uh, took him to a couple of little jumper shows locally. And I sold him for, I think, $5,000, which in retrospect, if I had that horse now, he'd probably be $15,000. But uh, it just kind of got my toe back in it. And I remembered why I liked riding every day. We didn't have an arena or anything. But um, because of that, a girlfriend of mine saw that I could ride and also saw that I could market a horse. And so she gave me a horse of hers to sell and I got him sold. And then honestly, with the money that I got from selling her horse, I bought Mac Dynamaker. So it all kind of comes together. What path did Dynamaker, as you call him, Mac, take to get to you? Because... Honestly, I'm I'm not going to shame him as a racehorse. He is oh, he the first terrible. horse. You're, you're my 11th uh, person and 12th horse to talk about. He's the only one that hasn't won a race. So how did yeah. he make it to you? He um, – <laughs> oh, Mac. He uh, <laughs> was owned by a good girlfriend of mine, and I had just sold this little – we called him a Pintaloosa. I just sold this little pony – who I was having a blast eventing. I got this pony going up to the novice level, sold him to a little young kid. She was probably 11 at the time. And the minute I sold him, I was just devastated. Like I was like, I finally got my foot back in this world and I'm having fun riding and I'm doing well at shows. And now I don't have a horse again. And my girlfriend reached out to me and was like, Hey, I have this horse for sale that I can't get to canter. And I was like, I'll come ride him and we'll put together a sales video. And uh, I went over to her farm, swung up on him. He was four at the time. I got him to canter barely, only to the right, not to the left. But I could could aim that horse at any little fence in the arena and he just popped over it. 
And I came home and I talked to my husband, well, my now husband, my boyfriend at the time. And I just kind of crying was like, I really like this horse. And he was like, then buy him. And I was like, I can't afford what she wants. And he was like, she's your friend. But (laughs) offer her less money. And so I got him for a pretty good deal. I think she just wanted him gone. And she also wanted me to have a horse to go out on trail rides with her. So it was a win-win. You know, I got him as a late four-year-old. He had chipped a knee uh, in his last start where he finished third. I think in Saratoga. I give Mac some credit. I think he would have done okay. Um, he ran in Belmont. He hit it the was Belmont. He ran two starts at Fairgrounds, and then he had a break, and then he ran at at Belmont. And I and I will give him credit. They were made in special weights. He ran competitive buyer figures, so I'm not going to shame him too badly. <laughs> I, I will. This is just to get on a little sidetrack. That is my creme de la creme. I do. I have another horse, which you might not have even realized, but I won the retired racehorse projects thoroughbred makeover in 2015 and dressage with a very famous racehorse and he scarred me for life <laughs> like I want the horse Ooh, I didn't know that huh no, that? okay well go back tell that story who is this yeah. uh called to serve is the name of the horse yes and he ran okay. like third in the Santa Anita handicap he won um oh gosh the discovery he ran second in the Oklahoma Derby, second in the West Virginia Derby. Like he was a legit racer. And he is now retired for being mentally unhinged. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So to be fair, let me tell you, everyone who's listening, the background, I met you at EquestriaCon back in 2017. Very impressed. You're incredibly intelligent and just have a really great head on your shoulders for horses, for making the industry better, for promoting off-track thoroughbreds. And you write a wonderful blog via kind of Instagram, a a Yankee in Paris. And that is how I followed you. And Mac has kind of been the star of the show. So I do apologize. I did not (laughs) highlight call to serve. But go back and talk about that experience of winning a retired racehorse project in dressage. That's amazing. Yeah, it was an insane experience. But it was also I, I... I still own him. He's my babysitter now. Um, I affectionately call him my humble pie. His name's Nixon. Um, I got him from Vinmar Farm, which is who owned him for the majority of his race career. And then they sold him at the Phasig sale as a five-year-old gelding for almost 50 grand. And he got sent out west and just fell down the ranks pretty badly. Um, and so when he was running for $5,000 tags, they claimed him and brought him home. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And then the farm manager immediately called me and was like, listen, (laughs) this horse is quirky. I don't want him going to somebody who doesn't understand that. And we need somebody who's not going to be scared of him. And I was like, let me had it. I can train anything. And I went and I saw him and he's 17-1. He's black. He is sound as sound can be. And he's the biggest jerk you'll ever meet in your entire life. And um, <laughs> we, I couldn't canter him until like two weeks before the makeover. It was bad. Wow. And I still to this day, I have friends and family that are like, how did you win? And I, I don't know. 
I honest to God think that that horse showed up that weekend and was like, there's an audience and they're here for me and put his head together. And he was phenomenal that weekend. And he was phenomenal for about nine months after that. But that poor horse, every time we would take a couple of steps forward in his training, he would get injured or like the, he kicked himself out of a trailer and fractured his hind leg. So like that set us back six months and then I'd get him going again and then he'd get hurt again. And it just was one thing after another, but he, if, and when you get off this interview, Google his name plus ESPN. And there is the funniest article that Gary West wrote that is all about how dangerous he was on the track. (laughs) And I have now learned to Google my horses before I take them on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to have to Google him right now. Oh, is but, they so what was his pedigree? A bull and perpetual search of a China shop. Like, it's really funny. Oh, my God. But he's, I, I love him now. He's 12. He still is the soundest horse in the barn. And he, I don't know why or how or what triggered it, but he is the world's best babysitter. So he goes out with all of our rehab horses, our layups. It doesn't matter if they're a filly or a colt. He's just, he has like this very arrogant, calming presence to him. So we utilize the crap out of him. Well, every horse has their purpose. That's for sure. So what has been Dynamaker, Mac, his purpose? When did, when did he come to you? Oh gosh, Mac. Uh, I got Mac in what is the timeline? 2000 and in fall of 2012, it's been that long. I got him as a late four-year-old in the fall of 2012. I think it was actually like Halloween day that I got him. Um, he, Mac is just like the best thing that's ever happened, but he's also like the dorkiest horse you'll ever meet. He is not Rico Suave. He is not a tall drink of water. He does not have the look of eagles. Like, in fact, he is we call it every day for Mac is Groundhog Day. So every day it's like, whoa, I jump a cross rail. And it's like, no, you actually jump a meter 20. And he's like, whoa, really? Like it just, nothing registers with him. Um, but I got him as a late four-year-old, um, started eventing him as a very early five-year-old. He quickly moved up to novice and then quickly moved up to training. And then I sold him. <laughs> and... I sold him to do the hunters because I thought that he was maxed out in eventing at novice or training and that he wasn't happy. And uh, he was sold for about 22 days. And then I got him back (laughs) and I've had him ever since. Um, What was the reason? It was a very bad situation where I realized in retrospect that the mom was trying to repair a very damaged relationship with her daughter by buying her a nice horse. And Mac got put through the crossfires of that and the kid didn't actually want to ride and didn't want to take lessons and it just became a whole kerfuffle and uh Max brain just imploded throughout the process. And so I, you know, again, my now husband, previously the boyfriend, um, just answered the phone during one of their days calling me to complain about how terrible of a horse he was and just was like, we'll come get him tomorrow. I'm done dealing with this. So Mac got a little bit of a break after that, because quite honestly, he was just pretty emotionally fried from the whole thing. 
And so that was 2016. 2017, great year of venting, just getting our sea legs back at training level. Um, 2018, terrible year because I busted my knee on another baby horse. <laughs> it's just, it's you know, the thing with the thing with these horses that you have for a very long time, it's crazy to look back in the past and see like where you were. If you had asked me in 2016 if Mac was going to go at the preliminary level, I would have been like, absolutely not. He's He barely has the speed to go training level. Um, and then go to three or four weeks ago, and I ran him around Pine Top down in Georgia, and we almost got speed faults for going too fast on cross country. So I just think that he's like a true testament that the horses change as they develop. And like he used to be the most amateur-friendly put any kid on him, have pony clubbers take their, you know, ratings on him. And now he's 13 years old and pretty feral. <laughs> like now he's a little bit harder to ride. <laughs> <laughs> Is there, do you think that's just because now he's kind of copped on to what it takes to be like a prelim horse that you have to be kind of on it and, or is it just, just this kind of mental physical journey that he's been on? I honestly, I, he makes me laugh so much. I think a part of it is, is that we have him going so well that he now really understands his job and thinks it's fun. Um, A lot of the blemishes that are on our record, I can point down to something not being right in his body, usually his feet. Um, He's really thin soled and usually has pretty expensive shoes on. So like if the footing gets really hard, we might have a stop just because he's like, ow, mom, that hurts when I land. Um, but he's now has pretty intense shoes on, so I don't think he can feel his feet anymore. Um, but I think that now he's we've learned how to manage him and we've learned how to train him and ride him and keep him really fit and happy. And so, like, when I took him down to Georgia a couple weeks ago, he was, like, rearing the whole way to the start box. And I was like, okay, is this a happy rear or a, I don't want to do this. And we left the start box and he put his head between his knees and was like, yes, I am on cross country. And I was like, oh, okay. You know your job now. It only, again, Groundhog Day, it only took almost 10 years, but he figured it out. Well, that's that's really incredible. And two, I mean, you have participated in the Thoroughbred Incentive Program, too. And wasn't he just recently kind of crowned champion? Yeah, that, the- was his, that was his first time winning one of those awards. It's really, I found that really comical because I have so many tip champion ribbons and bags and hats and it's always with one of my sales horses. <laughs> like I end up selling the really nice horses or called to serve Nixon. He won a crap ton and now he's retired. So like Mac has always just kind of been like the ugly stepsister that, you know, sticks around and keeps plugging along, but he never really wins those things. So for him to win it for the first time at prelim was just like, this is awesome. <laughs> He's like the Cinderella. Um, that's really cool. So what, for you, what has kept Mac around? Just because he kind of makes you laugh or because you feel as though you two kind of click? 
Um, it's a mix of so many things. And like I said, if you'd asked me one time per year for the last 10 years, it would, I would have given you a different answer. Uh, my answer right now is that I have never gone above novice prior to this horse. He's the first horse I've ever taken training level. He's now the first horse I've taken preliminary. I've always just done a good job with young horses and then sold them or, you know, just had my own mental demons. And so he is now the horse that is giving me a ton of confidence at the upper levels at prelim. We're hoping to do a two star this year. Um, and he's not perfect by any means. He will stop. The thing with Mac though, is that he will stop when he know he, he knows he can't do something. And so he's very safe. We're never going to run blindly at a fence and hit it and flip over. Um, and so for me, who's just gaining that experience at these bigger fences, it's really comforting to know that. Um, and it's also really rewarding to have done it entirely on your own. Like nobody else has ever competed this horse besides when I've leased him out to pony clubbers to do fun stuff with. So it's, you know, a kind of a mix between learning off of him, but also producing him at the same time. But when that sale fell through in 2016, I basically just made a promise that he's with me for life and I'll never put him through that again. And uh, my little, one of my best friends has a little daughter who's almost four now. And my ongoing joke is that Mac will be 18 when she's eight and they will go do the, the jumpers and scare the bejesus out of her mom. She are, she's been riding him since she was about 18 months old. So he'll become hers when he's done being mine. Oh, that's incredible. I love that. Now, you do have several horses that you still take and you resell. And how many horses, obviously, called to serves one of the biggest ones, but he's retired <laughs> with you now. But yeah. how many horses have come through you? And, and what are some of the biggest accomplishments that you've made with them? Gosh, I don't, I couldn't count. I, so I was pretty consistently doing between one and three a year uh, mm -hmm. since about 2013, 2014, and kind of producing them for three to six months and then selling them in like the low five figure range. Uh, and then last year, just a little bit of an impetus. Uh, my The barn that I'd boarded at for forever got sold. And my husband and I were like, this is ridiculous. We cannot afford to pay board on four to five horses. It would make more sense to lease a property. So we started our own farm, Swickley Stables. And it's now become, I think I've sold like 10 or 12 horses since we started it last January. So a bit more volume, a bit more number. Um, originally, we were really taking on kind of the gauntlet. So sales horses for other people, rehab horses, layup, letdown, breeding. We're still doing that a little bit, but a bit more selectively and really just focusing on our own sales stock. Um, it's, been, it's been really interesting and a lot of work and really gratifying. I'm trying to think of notable ones. Honestly, most of them are still quite young, even that I've sold in the past. I do have, I sold a really nice um, Devil His Due, and he's now going prelim. That was many Whoa. years ago. 
first ones I've ever sold. And so he's doing great with a college girl named Skylar Davis. And actually, she was supposed to compete against me this weekend on Mac. And I was like, that makes sense. Like, (laughs) again, I sold the nice one. Um, I have a couple of really nice up and coming ones that are just a bit younger. There's a horse named Theory, who actually ran in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile for Windstar. And he's with a lovely professional uh-huh. rider in Kansas and moving up the levels. And then I just sold a really nice horse last year um, called West of Ireland, who was a Geo Ponte. And he is doing really well down in Ocala with his owner. And he's five this year and solidly going novice. So I think he'll go quite far. Um, but those two, Theory and West of Ireland, were my two favorites thus far. I currently have a really, really nice four-year-old Empire Maker, a little baby Mac that I think is just the real deal. So, What was his jockey club name? Judge Johnny. He's actually the – he's out of a mare named Lucas Street, and he's the half to a Breeders' Cup winner. Um, I can't think of her name right now. But – he is actually still owned by the farm that bred him by Bonchance Farm. They reached out to me last summer and said, you know, we know you love Empire Maker. Here's one. And I was like, yeah, of course I'll, you know, take him from you, buy him from you. And they said, no, 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 we want to stay in. So they still have ownership of oh, it. wow. They pay me to keep he's, him going. He's half to Wavell Avenue. Yep. The yeah, Breeders' yeah. Cup Billionaire Sprint winner. Yeah. yeah no, <laughs> That's pretty cool. Gonna- legit pedigree and he was a very nice yearling but they set a pretty legitimate reserve on him and he didn't meet it so they retained him um and the farm bond chance has been phenomenal in supporting him um you know have i've never had an owner do or a breeder do that where they actually want to pay you training board to produce a horse so that's been pretty fun to do and Carly, I last week I interviewed somebody who actually the breeder kept tabs on a horse who ended up, to be fair, maybe not in a great situation in Wyoming running on the fair circuit. And because of her, he made it back to um, Kirsten, who now has him and, and kind of has the same sort of setup as you with retired racehorses in Ohio. How it, it really kind of dawned on me when she said that, how important from your vantage point for owners to kind of step up to the plate and be that watchful eye over their horses and where they end up and make sure that they, if they're not suitable to racing or if they can't race anymore to kind of step in and make that decision and be supportive of those horses off the track. Yeah, I think it's incredibly important, but as the person that's been on the flip side of it, I also know how impossible it is. And that's, I was actually just speaking um, with a girlfriend of mine who's been watching, is it the IFAR conference? They're doing that whole international aftercare conference right now. And Mm -hmm. we were talking about how behind the ball the U.S. is in comparison to other racing jurisdictions on aftercare in general. And a lot of it is not even aftercare or thoroughbred specific. It is just equine specific. So like in Europe, every single horse has a passport just to travel, just to prove ownership. We don't have that. So they're switching their passports to being digital and having GPS trackers within them so that you can actually follow horses literally. 
Um, we don't even have proof of ownership besides jockey club papers that are handwritten on who signs them. So I just, I, I completely agree. My biggest complaint though, is that the breeder or even the person that consigned the horse or the person that bought the horse as a yearling tends to be the one that gets the fall, you know, brought onto them. When I have now followed, oh gosh, three I try really hard not to fall in love with them anymore. So I don't even go with my husband to foldings because I've stopped. I can't do it. But I have now secured retirement for, I think, three that I have followed from the beginning of their life all the way through. And one, um, I had to wait until he was nine to get him retired. And he retired unsound. And had to be turned out for 18 months. And luckily, he's also a great at stakes winner, Maryland's guy. Um, I oh, then, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Big, probably the highest earning Yanaguska in the world. Um, Correct. He, he, I retrained him, evented him a bunch, uh, and just recently gave him to one of my best girlfriends, Fernanda Camargo. And she's competing him now. Um, but the other one is a Bodie Meister called True Force that I have in my barn. And he's another retiree, even though he's seven years old. And we delivered him, my husband and I delivered him. And I fell in love with this colt from the minute I saw him. And I followed that colt every single step of the way. And then he just disappeared. And I finally found him in Utah. Um, running in backcountry fair circuits and couldn't get the owner to give me a video of him alive, couldn't get a picture. And I bought him for close to a thousand dollars and paid almost three grand to ship him here. And he showed up with a broken front leg. So, you know, you, you're damned if you do damned if you don't, because if that horse, that horse, I knew that if I didn't buy him and ship him here and I had said to my friends and family, I'm going to get him here. And if I have to put him down, at least it's my choice. Um, luckily he's a pasture ornament and he's relatively okay on the leg. Uh, but if I hadn't sleuthed through Facebook, to find him and done the extra work, that horse 100% would have shipped to a kill pen. And then they would have flipped his lip and immediately thrown it back on the breeder. And you know what I mean? And the breeder hadn't owned him for probably four or five owners. No, so I, I, to- I completely understand both sides of it. And I, I just... I. And it's great to hear your vantage point because you're somebody who has literally been on both sides. Yeah, I just, I personally get more and more frustrated. Like I said, we've made a lot of improvement in 10 or 12 years. Like it's been crazy to watch it unfold in front of myself. Um, My biggest frustration right now is, are the trainers and the race owners that remain ignorant to the amount of options that we have for aftercare. Because if you retire your horse sound, the options are limitless. Like absolutely limitless. People like myself, Jessica Redman, Jen Roberto, there is literally a human being in every single state that will buy your sound horses off of you. So the excuse no longer exists of I need this horse gone as long as they're sound. But even if they're not sound, there are places that will rehabilitate them. 
And if they're not rehabilitatable, then we need to put them down. But this, this like willful ignorance needs to stop because it is 2021. We all have a smartphone and we all have social media and these race owners should not be ignorant to the new vocations and the benchmark sport horses and the Swickley stables and canter, you know, like there should be a continued education aspect for owners and trainers that involves aftercare. Absolutely. I mean, you're right that we have come so far because now there, there are those programs within the racetracks, you know, here in New York, we have take the lead and, and take two and, and they facilitate and finding uh, horses. And as Rick Schossberg, who runs it always says, you know, don't have the one more race mentality, retire when it's appropriate. And when that horse has every opportunity to go on to a second career and be successful uh, and, and be loved and, and have that good life and retirement. Yep. Um, but thank you for standing up and saying that. It, it needs to be said. So let's digress a little bit. <laughs> Get back to Mac Attack, as you were saying. I don't want to keep you too much longer. But at the end of my interviews, I always like to kind of ask some, you know, personal questions about the horses. So I, my first one is always, what is Mac's favorite treat? Oh gosh. Um, I will be fully honest. I am not much of a treat person because you Scrooge. No, I know. But this horse, he is so funny. The only way that he shows anxiety is by his lower lip flipping constantly like he makes a noise with it and so when people give him treats he'll stand there and be like look at me I'm so sad and his lower lip will flip um with that being said he loves those stupid peppermint cookie pellet things I don't even know what they're called it's a pink oh, bag. I know what you're talking about maybe he sells them <laughs> that's his favorite treat but he very rarely gets it <laughs> <laughs> Well, okay. Let's pretend that like he's a person, and if you guys are out in the town, what would his drink of choice be? Beer. He's he's a simple, simple-minded. He would go for. He would be the type of guy that would be like a light beer, and if they were out of Bud Light, he would drink Coors or Miller. <laughs> a Mick Ultra. Yeah, yeah. Well, he would be like, I'll have a Mick Ultra, but my girlfriend's making me watch my body. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Okay. Um, what would his theme song be if he had one? We were actually just talking about this while cross-country schooling because he – I always ride with music, and he definitely is like a Lumineers, Mumford & Sons, you know, maybe like Red Hot Chili Peppers on an especially feisty day. Um, you can come hang with me anytime because that's yeah. just like right up my alley. Now that I'm thinking about it, he's based. I'm just I'm just describing my husband. I'm actually not describing Mac, but I think well, wait, he, really he very quick. much you, likes like you've the, talked you know, about the your good husband, slow Luke. rock, modern folk rock. So, but so really quick, who is Luke? Who is husband Luke? Husband Luke is Luke Sullivan. Um, I met him on the soccer fields at Darby Dan. We played Americans versus Mexicans, and the Americans got their butts kicked. And I started dating him pretty soon after that. That was 2009. 
Um, and now he, we are married and live together and he is the broodmare manager at Mount Brilliant Farm. Um, Mm -hmm. so he also is a horsey guy. He's actually probably a better rider than I am, but I can't get him to ride ever. Um, he, he, he originally claimed he just hates tacking them up. So I offered to tack it, the horse up and he still won't ride, but he's a brilliant horseman, even if he won't admit it, but even more so than that, he's a brilliant maintenance mechanical person. So he's, he's involved in my farm on that basis. He plays with the tractors and stuff like that. So that keeps him happy. Oh yeah. Like I, we, I joke that him on a tractor mowing is the equivalent of me on Mac on a trail ride. Like he likes it. So It's very complimentary uh, of a relationship, I'd say. Yeah, we we weren't sure if we would ever be able to work together. And then we ran our own consignment many, many years ago and realized that we're actually the dream team because he just wants to be behind the scenes and not speak to a human. And I like talking to people (laughs) and selling all the horses. Perfect. Well, I mean, does he help you in fi- in finding you know suitable buyers for the horses that you sell? No. <laughs> he, okay, it just goes he, as far as riding the tractor. He's very. Let's put it this way: he is very helpful and supportive in like sourcing me the mechanics and technology that I need (laughs) to sell the horses. Like he was the first one to like buy me a solo shot camera so that he wouldn't have to take videos. (laughs) Or when I I'm constantly traveling right now to out of state horse shows. And let me tell you what that truck and trailer is greased and oiled and ready to go. And like, I don't have to worry about any aspect of that. Um, And he, like, if I'm, it's just really nice. Like I was sick the last couple of days and it's really nice to have a spouse that you can be like, Hey, can you do this treatment? Put this hoof pack on whatever. Because even though he's really busy with foaling season, he can do all of those things. We actually, that's one of our greatest arguments in our marriage is who puts on a better hoof pack. I still say. Yeah. For, for Mac, getting back to him, what would, What's his biggest love in life? Sadly, probably me. He like he is weirdly obsessed with me, and he going back to Luke. He and Luke hate each other um, because of how weird of like the chihuahua that hates the husband. There's a lot of jealousy there. Um, If it wasn't me, he loves barn cats. Loves them like thinks that they're the funnest thing in the entire world and just wants to like nibble on them and snuggle with them. And they're all petrified of him. (laughs) So great. Um, Okay. Well, what's his biggest dislike? Water. (laughs) Water to a T. That's been our biggest hiccup in eventing is that he's really not convinced that there are no alligators or sharks. And it's been a, it's been a journey to convince him that like, for 10 years now, he has yet to be eaten by an alligator or a shark. So like, within like the last probably nine months, he started to trust me that he's not going to die. Uh, I was gonna say for anybody who wants to check out you on Instagram, you have visual evidence of Mac starting to get over his fear. But now rewatch that video. And you'll notice that he jumps the jump lands sees the water and I almost come over his shoulder because he jumped in three limb fence and then was like, whoa. And he's, 
that water complex, he has gone through probably close to 750 times in the last 10 years. And he still jumped in and was like, what? When did this get here? Again, groundhog day. So. Sometimes you don't want the smartest horses. No, I I don't. I like dumb, dumb geldings. I like being able to tell them what to do. (laughs) Could not agree with you more. As (laughs) ironically, my next question is, what has Mac taught you? Everything. Honestly, like without getting wicked emotional, that he's, he's just held my hand through a lot of stuff. I, you know, I didn't ride for a very long time because I got so burnt out as a kid. Um, just got, I was very competitive and burned a lot of friendships, burned a lot of bridges, burned a relationship with my mom. And uh, it's been really nice to get back into it and have the competition. Just, I, it's just between me and him and improving ourselves. I never worry about where I'm going to finish. I never worry about the ribbon I'm going to win. And so it's just been really nice to have a horse like that where like every single show we're working on something different and something unique. And it takes all of the buzz around us out of the equation, which was really beneficial after Call to Serve came along and people started to notice me and watch me and fixate on me at shows and kind of stalk the scores, it put a lot of pressure on me. And Mac just has always kind of taken the pressure off and has been like, nah, mom, we're not here to win. We're, we're here to get in the water. And then I'm like, okay, you're right. Cause I could be winning and then you won't go in the water or we could have a weekend like last weekend where we will move up like 14 places because you go in the water. So he keeps me humble, but he also, it just, it, it makes it fun again. And that's, I'm really happy that that's the mental headspace that I'm in as an adult eventer. I don't get competitive with others. If we win, that's awesome. Um, if we don't, I don't care as long as the goals that I have set for that show have been achieved. That's really cool. Um, it's just that that mental maturity that you gain as you get older. Um, but what, okay, if you could sum, sum Mac up in three words, what would they be? <laughs> I'm trying not to be mean about him because he's been so good. Um, quirky. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I don't it's so hard to pick single words uh you can do phrase too least amount of effort possible um and lovely he is he really is just lovely he's just he's the funniest horse to be around he you know that's a good word unassuming yeah you would, you would see him go and you would be like that horse could never clear a spread meter 20 oxer and every time we make the fences bigger, he just barely gets over it again. <laughs> and then we make it bigger and it's barely over it again. He puts the least amount of energy possible into most of his job. Oh, that's great. I mean, that's that's what you want, you know, just enough to get by yeah. uh, and be brilliant at it at the same time. That's why well, he Carly- <laughs> Exactly. That's what I've always said um, about racehorses when they're on the racetrack. They, they, if as long as they do what they're, you know, run to their ability, they're they're going to stay sta- sound and healthy throughout their careers. So, Carly, thank you so much 
for your time, for your candidness, for enlightening me on the fact that you killed it at the Retired Racehorse Project six years ago, and uh, for all that you've done with the horses that you've taken off the track and retrained and sold, and for keeping Mac and keeping us engaged with a Yankee in Paris and just being brilliant at it. I do I do just have to give one last shout out before I forget to, but Dr. John Chandler, um, who just lost mm-hmm. his wife at Mill Ridge, is who bred Mac. And yeah. he has been a faithful follower for as long as I've had Mac to the point where Mac was like his screensaver on his cell phone and he would go to Newmarket and show pictures of Mac off to big time breeders over in Europe. And he was just as excited about Mac being a jumper as he was about any of his horses winning a grade one. So I do just want to give that quick shout out. And he's obviously going through a hard time right now, but lovely, lovely guy. Well, they're an incredible family and they're, they're very, they're a very humble family as well. And you know, giving our condolences to them. Um, and just incredible that they they followed Mac through all of his all of his adventures. Um, so Carly, once again, thank you for your time and everything you've done done for the horses. Thanks so much, Maggie. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this week's edition of Off Track. I want to thank Carly for joining me and talking about her boy Dynamaker and also enlightening me to the work that she did with Called to Serve. And if you want, make sure you check out that story that Gary West did write. It's still up on ESPN.com called called set to serve notice and it is he he's quoted as saying called to serve was a bull in a perpetual search of a china shop and i love the quotes too by his one-time trainer nick kanani who said that he had to get this horse just to relax stop running off stop trying to do acrobatics out on the racetrack so he would take him on trail rides to just get his mind focused on what he's doing and just be able to enjoy himself so it really kind of is a a little glimpse into what it takes sometimes to get into a horse's head and how ultimately rewarding it can be to eventually figure them out and to have them successful whether it's on the track or off track, as we saw Carly do with Called to Serve and Dynamaker and many of the other horses that she's had in her stable. So as always, want to encourage everybody to share, subscribe, and leave comments. And as always, if you want to help the horses at the Thoroughbred Retirement Foundation, go to trfinc.org slash off track to donate.